0: This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot! There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50,
1: Stay on or get off?
0: it blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed, straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of 50 Miles Per Hour. When we last left off, things were moving along at Fox. Screenwriter Graham Yost, producer Mark Gordon, and junior executive Jorge Saralegui are developing the script for Speed, tightening it, making it better. Meanwhile, they're thinking about casting. Who could step into these roles and not break the bank? More to the point, who would be willing to do it in the first place? It's a struggle to find the right equation to get a green light from the studio. Here's Jorge Saralegui with an update.
2: Okay, so we're going along, can't cast a movie. And if you're wondering where's Keanu Reeves, he is, at, for the first couple of months that or, you know, come to figure out casting, he's too young. In other words, we won't even talk about him. He's just plain off the list. He's not a pro and con guy. He's just, no. He's a kid. So we're doing that and we are unable to get a lot of people. At one point, we decide, okay, what if we cast a Sandy's role big? Okay, like Halle Berry. And then we can get somebody lesser for, for, um, for Keanu's role. And she turned it down, which is funny because like a few years later, her manager, who I'm talking to about something completely different, says, yeah, you know, Halle Berry still beats herself up over it, having turned down speed. So there we are having a hard time casting. We are, in the meantime, looking at directors. We're making a $15 million action movie. All we want is a serviceable action director.
0: All right, let's hit the brakes for a moment. If it sounds messy, that's because it was. They were sort of doing all things at once, trying to line up actors, trying to get a director to sign on. But we're going to spend today talking about the director search. Now, when you read about speed, you probably read all kinds of things about who was, quote, in the running to direct this movie. You'll read about John McTiernan. You'll read about Walter Hill. Here's the thing. Nothing you read is true in the sense of the studio having much of a choice. It's fair to say every director in town was, quote, in the running because, not that they sent it to everyone, but they would have taken anyone. Here's producer Mark Gordon detailing the level of desperation.
3: We met a couple of directors. L- let me tell you, I couldn't give this thing away. No director who you would put at the top of any of your lists, was interested in doing this movie at all. You know, it was slim pickings. I did meet with Michael Bay before (laughs) he was Michael Bay and decided not to go with him. It was less a rejection of Michael and more. And by the way, I can't even remember whether he was that excited about doing it. You know, sometimes you have meetings with people and they're you know, you, you meet them and it's kind of a general meeting, but there's a specific project to talk about. So the meeting was
2: specifically about speed, but it was also a general meeting. At the very beginning, uh, Peter, Ch- <laughs> Peter Churn sent me on a, on a, on a suicide mission to um, talk to uh, Rennie Harlan. Okay, Rennie Harlan had just done Cliffhanger. They were doing, he was doing post at Fox and everybody knew it was going to be a big hit because of that trailer that had already come out. Right. So so Peter <laughs> sends me to meet Rennie Harlan. keep in mind that I'm just a junior executive and uh, sends me to meet him and says, okay, here's your argument. Okay. Your argument that he's already succeeded on a big budget. Now he can show everybody he can succeed in a low budget <laughs> right? because of course <laughs> that's how action directors think. <laughs> so so i go there i don't even know if if i even bothered to say that right but 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 i went and he was actually really um kind he obviously had no intention of doing it but he spent like an hour talking to me and you know that didn't go anywhere he's the only big name we approached to just hit a home run immediately right and get rennie harlan coming off cliffhanger
0: and rennie harlan by the way was already in the fox stable as it were having directed the sequel to die hard in 1990. Although it's probably a pretty good thing he didn't have that debacle of Cutthroat Island hanging over his head just yet. That would come later in 1995. Anyway, here is former Fox production president Tom Jacobson with more on what their expectations were of getting one of these bigger names.
1: I don't remember Walt discussing, I've, and it could be a memory. I mean, Walter, you know, obviously been involved in the Alien franchise, and but I don't remember him being discussed for this or raising his hand for it. We weren't going to get in those days, John McKiernan or whoever was the sort of top action director. You know, John was already like, you know, on for Red October and the Die Hard movies. And so he was he was unattainable. So we were trying to hire a solid, again, a type of action director that would take this assignment.
3: I met with this other director and 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 we met him with the studio uh, and his idea was to shoot it all with the blue screen or rear-screen projection.
0: So, this has been mentioned before, specifically in the commentary track for the film that Mark did with screenwriter Graham Yost. But I don't think the name has ever been revealed. I was able to track down who this was, and the director Mark is referring to here is Dwight Little. Dwight Little was a reliable, sturdy journeyman filmmaker who was coming off of collaborations with Steven Seagal in Marked for Death and Brandon Lee in Rapid Fire, both of which he had done for Fox, which is why he was seen as a good hand at the studio. He had also directed the fourth installment of the Halloween franchise, The Return of Michael Myers, in 1988, as well as The Phantom of the Opera, starring Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England, in 1989. Now, as far as I can tell, if there was anyone else in the world truly, quote, in the running to direct Speed, it was Dwight Little. There were others in the ether, but he was sort of at the forefront of that crop of filmmakers for Fox. We liked Dwight, he was a solid action director. And he
2: was the one we were to go with, okay? And, and that was the example of like, okay, we can go for a safe thing or we can roll the dice for a home run with, you know, Jan's Jan spiel.
0: Jan's spiel. All right, let's finally get to him. Jan de Bont, at this point, was an in-demand cinematographer, and we're going to get far deeper into his portfolio and impact on the industry in a special episode next week. But just to quickly skip a stone across things right now, Jan began his career in Europe, specifically the Netherlands, shooting films for a young Paul Verhoeven like Turkish Delight, Katie Tipple, and The Fourth Man. He made the journey from Holland to Hollywood and established himself as a badass right out of the gate. On the embattled production of Noel Marshall's Roar, which was finally released in 1981 after a decade of folly, Jan was partially scalped by a lion on set. And yet, 200 stitches later, he returned to finish the film. He went on to projects like the Stephen King adaptation Cujo and the Danny DeVito comedy Ruthless People. He worked with rising stars like Tom Cruise on All the Right Moves and Madonna on Who's That Girl. More to the point, in the 80s and early 90s, he established an aesthetic that became something of a Hollywood signature on films like John McTiernan's Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October, Ridley Scott's Black Rain, Joel Schumacher's Flatliners, and Richard Donner's Lethal Weapon 3. And he had also just delivered some of his greatest work ever with Verhoeven's runaway box office smash Basic Instinct. However, he had never directed a film, though he had long set his sights on doing so. And now, at last, let's hear from Jan de Bont and where he was coming from as someone looking to finally direct professionally.
4: Yeah, you have to kind of go back a little bit in my early days as I uh, went on to, from the film academy that was in Amsterdam. It was an academy that just had started. So basically, we knew as much as the teachers, and the teachers had to learn as well how to run a film academy. And but it was actually that made it so great you know because there was like a a level playing field between teacher and student we kind of uh, we originated in that in that uh, in those years there a film group called film group one two three and meaning everybody could join No, it was relatively experimental but in those days I also directed already I did of course photography as well and and editing, and and that's a little bit how we taught the the film academy that the only way to teach students, is film students, is to learn them everything, not just learn them one facet of it, not just sound recording or or photography or acting or producing. So we changed for every project, we changed parts. You know, you became
0: the sound recorders, you became the producer, you had to act in it, So it was already in his blood, is the point, and it was nothing he felt was a giant leap. So 20 years into a heralded cinematography career, he was finally eyeing the director's chair. And Jan was familiar with the Speed script, by the way. He first came across it while it was in development at Paramount, in fact. As I mentioned briefly in an earlier episode, he was there developing the skydiving action movie Drop Zone at the time, which would later be directed by John Badham with Wesley Snipes.
4: They told me at paramount about the script they had um, speed and this uh, and I read that, like, oh, this is exactly you know I, I, the script wasn't really quite ready yet, but it was in a really good shape to really go to a studio with and and but paramount didn't want to do it and then we went to Fox and uh, they read it for us and they liked it, but they weren't quite sure because the biggest worry was like, how the hell can it Movie, but it must be interesting, you
0: know. All right. So, how does the project end up back in Jan's orbit at Fox? I'm just going to let these four guys—Tom, Mark, Jorge, and Jan—talk through what happened from here.
1: So the Jan, we all knew Jan from he was a celebrated, you know, cameraman, and he had done Die Hard for us and something else. But he was just really well regarded as a cameraman, and and also in terms of his contribution to the the look, the feel of the movie, right? Jan wasn't just a shooter. He was a guy who had a feel. But we didn't know him as a director, even know his aspirations as a director. And and I got a call from David Gersh, his agent, who represented top, m- mostly below the line people. The Gersh agency represents a bunch of people, but David specialized in below the line people and Cameron. And he said, listen, I really want you to consider Jan for this project speed. I'd like you to meet with him. So I was very honest with David, like I was with most people. And I said, listen, um, because it's you and I know who Jan is, I, d- I knew him a little bit. I'd known him from like a couple of years before in sort of the independent scene. I'll meet with Jan. Uh, but it's very unlikely. He's, you know, he, we don't if we don't need to experiment for the first time director, you know, business is conservative. Um, we won't. Um, but, you know, as a favor to you, David, we do a lot of business together. And Jan's stature is a DP. I'll meet with him. But, you know, low expectations. And David said, I appreciate it. My job is to get him the meeting.
3: When Jan came in for the first meeting, he was awful. And the studio said, we're not hiring him. He just couldn't articulate what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He's not a, the greatest communicator anyway, but he was nervous. And he really wanted to do the movie. And after the meeting, I got a call saying, there's no way we're hiring this guy. And I said, give him another chance. Uh, He'll be better next time. Let's remember, we're not hiring an actor. We're hiring a director. And just because he's not good in the room doesn't mean that he's not the right director for the movie. I knew that he had great ideas. And I just asked the studio, I just said, listen, he was really nervous and he's not used to doing these kinds of meetings. He's a DP. He's a filmmaker. He's not an auditioner. He's not an actor. He's not slick. Don't fucking judge him. Let's have another meeting.
0: Just to jump in here, no one on the studio side remembers this, by the way. They just remember Jan coming in with swagger and selling them on his vision. But Jan does actually recall a first meeting where he says he didn't do a good job of convincing the suits that he could accomplish the movie's action scenes on a budget.
4: Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember who that was with, but I thought it was with some studio executives and production executives, so with people that go over the budget, and, and, so, and, and that's what they complained about, and, and I, I was afraid that I didn't really address those production entities and the, and the cars and things like that and how you could basically make those scenes happen.
3: So Jan and I prepared for the meeting again the second meeting they agreed to take another meeting and I, I kind of walked him through how to sell yourself as a director to a studio um, and he was much better the second time.
1: So Jan comes into the meeting incredibly prepared and in the meaning, so here's here's the vibe of this movie. Here's what it should feel like. Here's what it looked like. And here you got a pro- one problem with the script. We went, go, oh, oh yeah. I mean, he's a cameraman. He said, you know, the movie goes like this, goes like this, and you're missing like an end of the second act crescendo. You're missing like some fantastic moment where just everything, the odds are against everybody. Jorge and I are going, yeah. And he pitched in the room the unfinished freeway bus jump. It was not in the script. That came from that director's meeting. And we went, oh my God. Jack, Jack, what if I shift into neutral and just keep the engine revving? No, you'd thought of that. What then, what, what? Oh my God. What?
4: Jack. Floor it. What? Ah! Floor it. It's an interchange. There might be an incline. Floor it. Fine.
1: Everybody hold on to your seats or whatever you can.
4: When we hit the gap, heads down. That's it? That's it? That's
2: all we can do. He sold himself on this movie's good, I'm going to make it bigger. Which, if you think about it, you know, for a moment, okay, it's a $15 million movie and you're a DP looking to get his first job on a... $15 $15 million action movie, like, it, you know, in a, in, in a kind of whatever movie, right? You don't sell yourself by making it bigger because you're going to scare people. Of course he meant I'll get more out of the dollar. Okay. He meant that, but no, when you heard him talk about what he wanted to do now, again, like we were either kidding ourselves or whatever, but nobody was thinking, Hey, he's going to blow the budget out. But the way that he imagined it, okay, you saw that every scene was bigger than what it looked like. Bigger, better, bigger slash better. You know, meaning like more dynamic. The word would have been bigger, but you could say dynamic almost equally. And so that's what he sold. He sold himself as I'm gonna. In effect, I'm gonna elevate this movie. Is another way of putting it, even though it's not the word he used. Um, and if you think about it, it's odd, um, and 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 impressive. He, he was very confident. He was not reassuring us. Do you, you know what I mean? He wasn't um, doing, a de- like, he very easily could have been doing, like, a defensive action. Like, I know what I'm doing. I can do everything really cheaply. I can get it in on time because I've done it a million times before. I can crank this thing out, and, and, and you know I'll do a good job, and, and, and I'll come in on budget. He could have done that, and that's not what he did. And to you know, at the end of the day, Peter Chernin's credit—that is why he got the job.
4: You know, it, was a, it wasn't a small production, but it was a, still a low budget. But what the good thing is that I had was um, having worked with so many film crews that I got a lot of help from. You know, a lot of people helped me by asking less money <laughs> number one, and, and they also thought that it could be really exciting. You know, it was something so different and almost overorganized productions. Of course, I was.
2: About the idea of going with a guy who saw the movie as being even better, okay, than what we had had in mind.
3: So you got these guys who, like, this is silly, or I've already done this, or don't, you know, I'm not doing this movie. These guys who are either hanging around the middle or are on the way down. And then you've got guys like Jan and Michael Bay who really hadn't had their shot yet. And I wanted to find somebody who I thought could be the Walter Hills and the john mctiernans and 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 the Dick Donners, um but just hadn't had the opportunity. There are two reasons I thought he was the guy for the movie. Um, one is that nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> now that's 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 half of it. The yeah. other half is that that though not always there are some incredible cameramen who have become very successful directors. Not a lot. Uh, Generally editors are, 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 you know, historically have become successful directors more than cameramen. The work that Jan had done as a cameraman was magnificent in this genre. And you could see how clever the camera work was and because I found that the camera work was consistent in, in interesting in multiple films, I presumed that it wasn't just the director, that mm-hmm. he had a lot to do with it. And he was a real collaborator with the directors that he worked with. And then I did my homework and found that he was, in actuality, a big part of the visual success of the movies that he made. Also, I knew that the movie was going to be logistically very, very complicated. And Jan had experience working on difficult, complicated visual effects pictures. I wanted somebody, I wanted to take a chance on somebody who could be great. And it turned out that he was. I mean, he, he really, really directed the hell out of that movie and made it what it is.
4: I think I was totally ready for it. I mean, I've done work on on, on some really big action movies already and, and it's really, I know how to handle that part of it. I just didn't want such a big crew. My problem was more like, I want to have a small crew because if you have this gigantic crew, that really becomes so stagnant in the making process because we were always moving, moving. You cannot move that base at which you eat somewhere, the next spot you go. So, mm-hmm. so the, the key thing was to keep it as small as you possibly could, you know. And and, and the whole movie takes place in two hours, mostly. So, so no costume changes, no this, no that. So you needed, you could get away with a lot less people, and, and that was really helpful.
0: Beyond all of that, however, Jan had a real vision that was sort of an extension of those early days in Europe with Verhoeven and his film school pals. These were budding filmmakers coming up in the wake of the French New Wave movement who were excited by the prospect of capturing a certain level of reality on screen. Emotional reality, circumstantial reality, the gripping nature of the day-to-day. Now apply that to the realm of genre and you start to see the promise of a new kind of popular filmed entertainment one that, of course, owes a debt to the American filmmakers who had begun forging this path a generation before Jan.
4: I always liked action movies. I liked my, my favorite action director was John Frankenheimer. I don't know if you saw the movie The Train, but that's just one example. If you look at a train where, where Lancaster has to run over the train, jump from wagon to wagon, um, um, climb down, jumped on the train onto all in one shot. And so he did something what I love to do is that actors do their own stunts. Mm-hmm. And there was like he never used the, or very rarely used doubles. And that to me is the, that one the moments that you can get by seeing this actor do that, it completely enriches that scene in such a tremendous way that no, no stunt double can ever compete with that he's, you know, um, he's not only performing, but he's also really running for his life. And he really, he has to be so careful and everything got, works at the same time. You know, as an actor who then uh, normally will do the closest for that, and uh, Stunt Double has done all the, ch- all the running part, he has no way that the actor can then duplicate that energy that you have and that incredible amount of um, excitement that you feel and and uh, the almost ecstasy in in having that you were succeeding in jumping from wagon to wagon to wagon and that you actually make it you cannot act that you know because it's it is most uh, most of the acting is then reacting to things and I want them to do it and so that the response comes from inside our own mind and not you know because I, the director tells him or heard wh- how they should feel it doesn't work to me i mean anyway so those those kind of simply, simple made, but more direct action movies.
0: And so, yeah, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, Jan wanted to apply this to speed. He wanted to immerse his actors in hair-raising, real-life circumstances so that he could capture a pure emotional reality on screen. And it was exactly what the movie needed. I use this as an example. I teach at USA. I teach one
1: class at USA. I use this as an example. You never know anything and how to interview directors, this story. So my point of view about that meeting and about a lot of meetings with creative people like directors is you don't know what you're listening for until you hear it. So that's how Jan got the movie. But like, you know, like, okay, fine, I'll take the meeting. Like, to from that to like, oh, wow, you're the guy.
0: By the way, as we start to wind down here, I did want to mention that Jan had one other big idea that he pitched in the room that day that didn't quite make it in front of the cameras. And we got really close to production to doing this. And he had another pitch. He
1: said... He wanted to give one of the like the little the old lady, the annoying old lady on the on the bus, a dog, an annoying (laughs) dog that everybody hated. Like, and she always rode the bus with this dog and the dog was a character. And like every all the people on the, you know, the people on the bus rode this bus a lot. (sighs) Fucking dog. And then right when they're like at the end, like when they're getting off the bus, the dog jumps out of the lady's arms and runs back into the bus. And it's like down to the minute, like when shit's going to happen. And, of course, the hero, Keanu's character, jumps back on to save the dog. And and it was also an amazing pitch because think about that character, right? He's pitching like a character, a relationship. He's pitching with the hero. The hero saves the dog. We ended up not doing it like, Can you imagine?
0: <laughs> and while we're still here in development with the studio guys, we should probably put a button on that Sherry Lansing story and tell the Fox point of view. You'll recall from a previous episode that after Speed was placed in a turnaround at Paramount, it mistakenly turned up in Sherry Lansing's stack of scripts to read when she came in to run the studio there in 1992. She really wanted to make the movie, but the execs there had to break the news that they no longer had it, and then there was a last-ditch effort to get the script back from Fox where Mark Gordon had set it up already.
1: I can't remember where in the process this happened, but Jan was on the movie we were budgeting. We weren't in pre-production yet. We were in sort of like... Packaging, let's say, like in the right circumstances with the right people, with the right budget and the right green light from everyone, we're going to make it. We weren't green lit. So then I get a call out of the blue from John Goldwyn, who I did not know. And I had a lot of respect for him for this call. And he says, We don't know each other, but I'm calling you about um, speed. I said, Yeah. He said, So, and and he said, and I don't remember if these were his words, but he basically said, I made a mistake which, you know, people don't do. It was a very sort of honorable thing to do. He didn't know what was going on with us. He knew that, he didn't know it was like, he knew it was making its way through the pipeline. Sherry Lansing came in, (laughs) read the script and said, didn't know that it had gone into turnaround. It was on some pile, (laughs) read the script and said, hey, let's make this. And John had to tell her, which I don't think was a fun conversation for him. It was, it's a bunch of, pictures that went in turnaround. no we were you know under no one was making it at the time and he called and he said to me he said you don't know me you don't owe me anything we're competitors are you going to make the movie because if you're not going to make it um could you give it back to us and he had also gone to the producer mark gordon and said that to him said look you know you've got a fee if you're not going to get paid to make it over there i'm i'll green light it right now (laughs) i'll your fee i'll even give you a bonus on it because i want to make it i'll guarantee that we'll make it so and i remember saying to john and then saying to mark listen i can't guarantee to mark or you that we're going to make it it's in the pipeline it's got a really good chance of getting greenlit because of all these factors we like it we don't have a lot of it i just was honest so we're not going to give it back to you and and mark came to me who's honorable but also uh, you know an aggressive uh, like i said in the good way And told me the whole story. Are you going to make it, Tom? You're my friend. I can make more money over there. Is this really going to happen? You know, producers get paid when a movie gets made. And uh, anyway, so the rest is history. We said no to Paramount. We made it. And uh, in those days, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I don't know if Speed's a famous story, but there's a lot of pretty well-known stories of turnaround hits. Obviously, Home Alone's one of them. E.T.'s one of them. Forrest Gump is one of them. And, you know, those stories have a similarity in that the. Because no one knows anything, right? No, you can't predict creative success. It's like, well, it doesn't seem, Forrest Gump especially so, uh, like, well, that just seems weird. We don't know what that is. So we don't want to make it. And E.T., you know, the famous story about E.T. is that, um, I think it was at Columbia, and Stephen had made close encounters there. And it was like they had Starman. So, well, we don't want to make two E.T. movies. (laughs) Anyway, so that's how it it got. That's what happened at Paramount and why it didn't go back there.
0: I did reach out to director Dwight Little for comment, by the way, given that there's so much discussion of him here. He politely declined, but just to close the chapter, Fox ended up pairing him with Graham Yost to develop and direct his speed follow-up. Unfortunately, it kind of happened again, as star international filmmaker John Woo decided he wanted to direct that project in the end. That movie was Broken Arrow, with John Travolta and Christian Slater, and that is why Little has an executive producer credit on that film. He would go on to direct Free Willy 2, The Adventure Home, and Murder at 1600. But circling back to speed, we have a director! But who is this guy, anyway? Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour... It's time for a detour as we take a deep dive into the work of Jan de Bont. That sense of unpredictability and vitality he loves to foster. New York magazine film critic Bilga Abiri joins me to discuss the Dutchman's early days in Holland as a cinematographer for directors like Paul Verhoeven.
1: But it is part of Jan's journey, right? I mean, th- this journey from sort of the way
0: he was doing things as a cinematographer and sort of what was innovative for him or, or what was special for him and how that eventually translated to him as a director. We'll talk about Jan's move to the States where he would become a key collaborator of Hollywood's top-tier directors but not before coming out of the gate with a near tragedy on set. There are a couple of ways to respond to an incident like that, right? You can become very careful and be very buttoned up in the way you might shoot action. Beyond Devont goes in the other direction. And of course we'll dig into his limited run as a director himself from Speed to Twister and beyond. He becomes one of these filmmakers who like doesn't mind danger on set. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter, at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley, that's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things.